Have you ever noticed that we live in a culture where folks tend to be discontent? We've talked about this in the past. Uh, We have folks all around us who seem to be somewhat dissatisfied with all kinds of things. And you might have noticed that one of those sources of dissatisfaction happens to be where they live. So as a pastor, I talk to people all the time who are thinking about moving to a better home. Uh, They thought about moving uh, out of the city or maybe even in the city. Uh, They thought about living, moving out of the state or even out of the country. And what's fascinating is we live in Phoenix, which is a city where you might notice that even locals are considered to be exotic creatures, right? I mean, haven't most of us come from some other place? We have left some home looking to make a new home for ourselves. And I believe that this actually is at root a desire and a longing that is at the heart of every human being. See, I believe that all of humans have, for a very long time, been looking to get home. We find it in the Bible, in the very first pages, in Genesis 1. We find that it begins the story of creation with God creating a gardener king, Adam, who is in this beautiful garden where he lives with peace with God. I mean, it's a glorious place to live, and he's there with his beautiful wife, and he's happy. And yet we find is, is it wasn't enough, and as a result of his sin, because he listened to the serpent, he was actually cast out of the garden. He was cast out of his home. He had to leave home. And I believe that ever since that moment when Adam was cast out of the garden, each of us, as those who have come from him, are a people who long to be home. And catch this. The home that we long for is not that forever home that you found on Pinterest. The home that you long for is a home that is in heaven, a home that is coming, a home that we are waiting for. And that's exactly what we find today as we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 27. We are coming to a garden. We are back in a garden with a great gardener who is telling us that we are actually free to come back to the home that we have longed for. I think C.S. Lewis was right when he said in Mere Christianity, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that is another world that is to come. As you see this morning, as we're looking at Jesus and are looking at Jesus' series in this first third of the book of Isaiah, which I've told you is is a part of the book that is looking forward to a coming Davidic, spirit-anointed king who is going to rescue God's people and bring them peace with God. This morning we see that this king is actually one who would not only rescue his people who wait on his coming, but he was actually going to deliver them back into the garden that they have so desperately longed for. And as Isaiah says, snakes and dragons are actually bad for God's garden. Now, I read some books on horticulture this week on gardening. Apparently, sometimes snakes are good for gardens because they keep the rabbits out. But dragons are really bad for God's garden. We know this all the way back from Genesis 3, that snake that messed up the garden that we love so much. Well, this morning we're going to find that God is actually going to make good on that promise. That promise that he made to the woman in Genesis 3.15, that he would give her a son who would undo the works of that nasty snake. And that's what we see here this morning. Now, you'll remember so far in chapters uh, 24 to 27, Isaiah, uh, they were summarizing what the return of the king would look like, and they've been doing that in song. So in chapter 24, the city of man was leveled to a formless pre-creation void like that that the Spirit hovered over in Genesis 1-2. 
We notice in Isaiah 25 that we were given the picture of humanity who proudly refused the city of God and they were returned to dust, the dust that they came from. But in Isaiah 26, the righteous nation that keeps faith sings of God's salvation as they enter into the gates of the new Jerusalem in a new Judah. And the final song of that cantata that began in Isaiah 24 erupts here in Isaiah 27 as God's is God calls His people home to a snake-free global garden. This is a good place. And what we're going to see, if you're taking notes, is this. That one day, God is going to forever set spiritual slaves free and call them home to a new fruitful creation. That's what's coming, a great day. Spiritual slaves will be set free. They'll be brought home to a new fruitful garden. That's the thing that we long for. We'll see this in a number of ways, but first, just notice the gardener will kill the great snake with his great sword in verse 1. The gardener will kill this great snake with his great sword, his greater sword in verse 1. Now, you'll notice that as we go through this text, there are a number of in that day statements. And in that day is, is telling us what this day is going to be like. And we find a number of, th- a number of things out about it. But every time you see in that day, you should recognize that it is actually pregnant with an eschatological, future, end of times, last day hope for you and me. So when you see in that day, that is a day that is for you who are in Christ. This is a great day for us. And you'll notice what the first description of this day is. It's a description of a warrior gardener. That's right. A gardener with ammo. Notice what happens. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, we are told that he will punish the Leviathan, that fleeing serpent. Not only that, the Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, as you look at this, Isaiah, he's actually borrowing from a mythological image in Canaan, uh, his neighborhood of the day. See, they believed that there was actually this great uh, dragon of the sea, or Leviathan, a sea snake, that ruled over the sea. His name was Rahab, which I don't know if that's a good name for a snake, but that's what they called him. And he actually ruled over the sea, and the sea represented chaos and disorder. It represented a world that actually rebelled against God. And they believed that there would have to be a great creator God who would come and deal with this snake before he was able to bring about a new creation. Well, fortunately, we actually have uh, Genesis 1, which gives us a historical account of what happened on the first day of creation. And that's that God creation everything good out of nothing. And it was only later that the serpent, whom God also created, who was Satan, came to tempt man into sin. Now, as we see this, we find that Satan was the serpent who led mankind to sin against his good God, his creator God. And that resulted in a broken world with broken sinners who were cast out of their garden home where they dwelt with God. But just catch how Isaiah describes the utterly pervasive influence of this snake over the whole world until his coming day until this coming day in in, uh, three descriptions. He gives us three descriptions of the utter pervasive influence of this snake. Uh, Notice um, that he first is fleeing. Uh, Now, Alec Moyer, uh, in his commentary, gives us a a description of what this word means. It's actually a picture of a kind of fluttering or an aerial power. 
So first, he's a, a flying snake, but not only that, he says that he is a snake that is twisted, a word that describes being coiled up on the ground. And then finally, we find that this dragon is in the sea or the water. Now, when you put this together, you understand the picture that Isaiah is drawing for us. Uh, Air, ground, and sea are utterly under the influence of this great cosmic snake. There's no area that is free from his corrupting and destructing effects. But that's okay. It's okay here. It wasn't okay in Genesis 3, but it's okay here because we have a gardener and he has a tool for that. You ever know somebody who has a tool for everything? I have a neighbor who has a tool for everything. In fact, I don't even know where he keeps all of these tools. It's like a man pulling clowns out of a small car. He's always got a tool for everything. And here we find that God has just the tool for this ever-pervasive influence of evil. Uh, Notice that just as there is a threefold flying, coiling, swimming, uh, swimming snake, he has a hard sword, a sword that is hard, great, and strong. Perfect to meet the influence of this enemy. And don't miss this. A dead snake, like we find here, signals the arrival of a new, glorious, groan-free creation. Are you ready for that? Like, I'm ready for that. I'm ready for groan-free creation. I'll take that right now, please. But did you know that you are actually part of, and this is something I think that we need to be reminded of, that we are part of a cosmic war between spiritual forces and God wins. You might not be aware of that today. And maybe even as a believer, you've forgotten that in some sense. And you've been led to believe that there is a sense in which there is not a spiritual battle that is going on for your soul. In fact, we're told that in this world, none of us are actually truly free. Yeah, we do what we want, but even the things that we want are influenced by spiritual forces that are vying for our souls. And we know that Jesus himself says that either you are under the reign of Christ or you are under the reign of the spiritual powers of darkness. So did you know this morning that there's a war that's going on for your soul? Well, here's the good news in Christ. The good news in Christ is is that you have won in Christ. That's not good news if you're not in Christ, but if you're in, in Christ, it's very good news. Weeds and stakes, they can't stop our great gardener. See, the good news is that God carries a big, hard, strong sword. Now, experientially, let's be honest, it might not feel that way all the time. Why doesn't it feel that way? Well, because we are living in the already not yet reality of the victory of Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about? There is a sense in which we already are under the reign of Christ, and yet we know that This is not fully what we read about here and elsewhere in the Bible about what the glorious reign of Christ is going to be. And so there is some sense in which we are experiencing it, and there is another sense in which we are groaning and awaiting the fullness of all that's been promised to us. Now we see this in the Bible. I mean, you look in Colossians. Colossians 2.14 says that God canceled, past tense, the record of debt that stood against us as lawbreakers, nailing it to the cross. And God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So there's one sense in which the cross was a sword with which God chose to disarm all spiritual forces, including Satan. And yet we know also in the Bible that that's not the fullness of what we'd experience. We're told that we're more than conquerors in Christ, but we know that the Bible also tells us that there is a greater coming day that we long for. Sure, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, and we've been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness and redemption of sins. 
But yet at the same time, what we know is, is that there is a great Revelation 20 day that's coming whenever God promises us that He is going to finish what He began. And we're living between Revelation 20 and between Colossians 1. And sometimes, though we know that we are conquerors because of what Christ has done at the cross, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way. It's hard to feel like a conqueror when you're carrying guilt and shame over dabbling in darkness and sin that feels like it's got more control over you than you do over it. It's hard to feel victorious when you are lonely or depressed or hurting or when your kids don't seem to respond to the gospel, though you beg them. Or when the doctor tells you that you are really sick. Or when you fight with people that you should love most. Or when culture tells you, catch this, you probably heard this, that Christianity is harmful for kids. It is hard to feel victorious. But catch this. The brokenness of this world. It should remind us, along with Isaiah, that Jesus broke Satan's back at the cross, but he's coming back to chop off his head. And that's what Isaiah is telling us here. He's not done yet. In Revelation 20, we are told the end of this great dragon that might feel like he's got more control over you than you have over him right now. There it says that he will, Jesus, seize, or this angel will seize the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and will bind him for a thousand years before throwing him into the eternal lake of fire to burn forever. Now, Here's why I think that's so important. I think it's important to realize where we're at. I think this is why churches need to make sure that they lament. You know, if we come in every Sunday and we sing that we are victorious as we are, but we never stop to recognize that the world, not is, the world is not yet what it should be, and that none of us are fully perfected in the way that we need to be perfected. In fact, most of us feel very, very inadequate and not perfect. I love whenever people come into my office and they say, you know, Pastor, I'm just not sure that this church is for me because I look around and it seems like everybody's got their act together. And I'm like, where are you sitting? I mean, for one, you should at least be able to see me, right? The reality is we know that we have not experienced the fullness of what is. And we need to be a people who lament because here's what happens when we lament. Our lament is not just sad and sorrowful and hopeful and hopeless. When we lament, what we are saying, catch this, is that things are not yet the way that they should be. And, and we want to recognize that. But also as we do that, we are being reminded that we need something else to happen. And that something else is Jesus's return. So we lament loudly because we want Jesus to get back quickly. That's the thing that we're called, I think, to in Isaiah 1, is before the, the snake is fully dead, we see what God has done to him and what he will do to him. We know his end from the beginning. So if we gather together, we need to act like we are victorious in Christ, and yet all the day long waiting for Christ to finish what he has begun. But there's a second thing that we find in verses 2 to 6. Notice that God's pleasant garden is freed to multiply and fill the earth. God's pleasant garden is freed to multiply and fill the earth. You remember that Adam was actually placed in the garden, given dominion as a king over it, and told that he should multiply and fill the earth. And yet here we find that God actually fulfills what he set forth to happen. Now notice a few things here. First, notice that the joyful gardener's anger turns to joy on this day. That's a good thing. 
You know, uh, this is a, a great picture that we have here of the care of the Lord. You know, when my uh, wife, she just recently went and she visited Florida, she was visiting family. And uh, when she got back, I was really excited because I kept our dog Shep alive all by myself. Like usually we have to keep a babysitter for the dog even when I'm there. Um, but I did it all by myself. He was alive when she got back um, and I was really happy. And the, the, the funny thing was, as soon as she got home, she came in the door and she said, the fish is dead. And I said, we have a fish? <laughs> I didn't really care much about the fish because I didn't know we had a fish. And so my care for the fish was not really that good, right? Well, I think that what we find here is, is that God is actually caring for his garden in a way that shows incredible care and love for and delight in this particular garden. I mean, just take note of how good our gardener God, our gardener God cares for his garden in verses 2 to 4. Now, there we see a, a picture of it. He says, in that day, a pleasant vineyard. And then he's so happy with it, he screams out, sing of it. God is actually asking others to sing about the beauty of this garden. And he says in verse 3, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Every moment. And not only that, he says, lest anyone punish it, I keep it. Day and night I have no wrath for this garden. What a difference a day makes. When God says, I have no wrath, it literally says there's no anger in God for this garden anymore. Now, that might sound shocking to you if you've actually read Isaiah so far. Because has not Isaiah all throughout been pouring out his wrath on his unfaithful garden and on the nations? And yet here we find that God's not angry anymore. Uh, you'll remember the book starts in Isaiah 5 in this introduction where he says, I will command the clouds that they rain no more upon it, his vineyard. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. I mean, we see a couple things here. One is God is not happy with his garden here. He's angry. And second, his garden is his people. You see it? The garden is his people. That's the, the people on whom he was angry with. But here, God angrily withheld his water from his garden, his people. But notice how God's tune will change on this future day. When doom turns to delight in singing over God's pleasant garden. See, God is actually providing water and protection for it. And God, he says, will forevermore lock his eyes on his garden every moment, day and night. Nothing will touch his garden. Don't you want God's care for you in that way? That's the kind of promise that he has given about this future day. But notice not only that, he says that God, uh, second, gives hope to the thorns and briars that might be in this garden, verses 4 to 5. Now, in Isaiah, you'll remember that thorns and briars represent that which is opposed to God and His people. And here, God often offers even these thorns and briars hope. Look what He says in verse 4. He says it in a way at first that's hard, but then soft. In verse 4, He says, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. But notice these are hypothetical thorns and briars. A hypothetical opponent of God that will not exist on this day. 
I love what he's doing. You see God actually here kind of bowing up like Mr. T, right? Like, I I, I pity the fool, right? Do y'all know Mr. T? Is that like, I mean, I know some of y'all are young, but is that like not? Okay, Mr. T, you need to study Mr. T. Uh, Great wisdom there. But Mr. T used to say, I pity the fool because he knew that whatever enemy or opponent that was coming up against him had no hope. And here he's like, I pity the weed like that comes against me. These thorns and briars. He would march against them and burn them up. But then notice what he does. He immediately immediately shifts and offers an invitation of peace and protection to these thorns and briars that were opposed to him in verse 5 saying, or let them lay hold of my protection and let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. I mean, this image looks like the same invitation that God offered Moab, his great enemy, in, in Isaiah 16, where he, he said, I'm inviting Moab, these enemies of mine, whom I will be against, to come and find shelter in Zion. And not only that, this is a beautiful image. God says here, and catch this, this is great. God says he can transform worthless weeds into fruitful vines. And what a, what a hopeful promise for all of us today. Maybe, no telling what you're going through, you feel like a worthless weed. You feel like because of your past or your present, you have no future. And God has always been in the business of turning worthless weeds into beautiful, glorious, fruitful vines. In fact, everybody in this room is either someone who was a weed or is a weed. And the only thing that changes or makes a difference between whether you were a weed or are a weed is what God does, coming and giving you value and worth in Christ and Christ alone. What good news. See, God offers you peace with Him when you root yourself in Christ. So if you today, if that's you, put your faith in Christ and trust that He will make you glorious beyond what you can know. But catch how 6, verse 6 brings it all together. He says, it says there that God's garden fills the earth with fruit. God's garden fills the earth with fruit in verse 6. He says there, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. I think this is one of the most encouraging explosions of hope in Isaiah yet. We've seen explosions of hope throughout. There's darkness and then a bright light. And here, this might be one of the brightest lights. You remember that Isaiah has spent 23 chapters detailing how God's garden would be leveled to a single stump, only promising a single shoot that would also be the root springing from Jesse, King David's father. So they've got this image that's been developed of a whole world under catastrophe with just one stump left out in a barren field. And from it, a shoot would spring up. And so you might be thinking to yourself, God never will multiply and fill the earth like he created Adam to do. But here we find that Jacob, also called Israel, takes root and puts forth shoots. And it's not just that he survives, he thrives. He fills the whole earth with fruit. See, God places the influence of Satan, sin, and death to death. And with the influence of this king, he leads his people in righteousness and the multiplication of fruit. Now don't miss this. This is Eden restored, but this isn't just Eden surviving. This is Eden thriving. God says the purposes that I had, they have not been thwarted. In fact, it's going to be better than what I told you in the first place. 
the garden Adam and Eve met with God in on a corner lot in Eden has now spread like weeds, if you don't mind the illustration, throughout the whole earth multiplying fruit. I mean, what an image. The future city of God will be a fruitful global garden. It's hard to read this without thinking of John 15, isn't it? Where Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser, and I am what? I am the vine. And you are my branches, and you should produce much fruit. In fact, the way that you know that you are connected to the root, which is Christ, is that you produce fruit. And those are all kinds of fruits. Not only that, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits of a new fruitful creation. 1 Corinthians 15, 22-23, that speaks of the glorious resurrection that we're going to be thinking about next week, says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now, if Christ is the root, I think what this is saying to us about this new creation and whether or not we have truly been united with Christ is we are promised that we will bear much fruit. It's not a question in John 15. If we are connected to the root, we will bear much fruit. See, true faith rests in and relies on Christ. And I think this means that God's new covenant is already producing spiritual fruit because those people are united to King Jesus who gives us His Spirit. And His Spirit is bringing life even before the new creation fully breaks out. So uh, it's important this morning to know that within the kingdom of God, even now, there's no fruit optional section. Right? It's not like, okay, well, all the trees and vines that are going to be fruitful and produce lots of grapes, you hang out here, and all you guys that just aren't into fruit, like, y'all hang out over there. No, God says, like, if you're not into producing fruit, then you're not in me. This is what my people do. They bear much fruit. See, there's no saving grace without spiritual grapes. We will increasingly demonstrate all kinds of fruit, like the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Galatians 5, right? You will increasingly, over time, become more loving, joyful, peaceful, patience, kind, goodness, you know, good, gentle, and and self-controlled. You'll evidence those more and more. Now, maybe sometimes, like, your trajectory looks a little like this, right? Uh, And then you get to, like, 10 years down the road, and it's like here, and then, like, you know, there's like this to get to 20, But there is a change that is happening through your life whereby you are more and more producing fruit. Maybe it's not just these fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of evangelism. Or or your love for the local church or growing in holiness. A love for in submission to God's Word. All of this should be increasing at least in different ways at different times until God's new world completely breaks out. We are already seeing the fruit of the new creation. But fruit's important because... Fruitless wood today gets burned on the last day. That's what we find here, and we find it in John 15 and all over the New Testament. We need to be reminded that fruit's important. We are not saved by faith in works, but faith that works. And we will see fruit of God's work in our lives. So let me just ask you this morning, you need to think about it. How's your fruit? A fruit issue is a root issue. So let's make sure that we actually have fruit that points to Christ. I'm not asking you to go home and get your stapler out and start stapling apples to your sleeves. 
to pretend you are something that you're not. I'm asking you to ask whether or not your soul is trusting God as your Savior, as your sole means of hope before God to reconcile you with the God whom you have broken relationship with. If you really trust that not only is He your only hope for reconciliation on the first day, but for eternal life and spiritual growth until that last day. That's what it looks like to love God. But notice here that the full fruit Notice here the full fruit that God looks for in verses 7 to 11. There it says, third, the full fruit of the gardener's labors is this, wholehearted worship. That's where it goes. Wholehearted worship. That's Isaiah's aim. Now you'll remember that Isaiah's told us that our gardener is a a sword-wielding warrior gardener. Uh, He is not your average gardener. But notice here that God strikes some for fruit and others for fire. Everybody gets struck, but some are struck for fruit and others for fire. And we see this in Isaiah uh, 27, 7 to 11. Look there again with me. This is what he says in verses 7 to 11. And I'll just begin with 7 to 9. Here's what he says. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as they, their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones, crushed to pieces. No asherim, no incense altars will remain standing on that day. So catch this. Isaiah says, everyone, God strikes. God strikes everyone, and all of us are sinners. But the end of his striking, notice that it multiplies fruit in some and destroys by fire others. First, you'll notice those who are uh, struck for fruit. Where God's striking bears the fruit of a wholehearted worship in his people. So in these verses, God not only struck Adam, we know exiling him out of Eden. You'll remember that. God often struck people And sent them into exile. He did the same with Israel. He would do that whenever Assyria came upon them and lead them into exile. We see that with Judah and Babylon. God often struck his people with exile, sending them away from their home. But while God scattered Israel in exile, remember, he shattered Egypt in the Red Sea. He did not strike them in the same way. And God never allows the chaos to envelop his people. And here's, I think, an important question. What does verse 9 mean when it says, therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for? What is the this that God uses to bring atonement? Well, it's the striking of Israel. You remember that God struck them to make atonement for their guilt, to remove their sins and to bring them home from exile to his garden. He hoped that when he struck them, that their hearts would turn to him in softness. Have you ever noticed the beauty of when you find a Christian, someone who loves Jesus and loves his people, when they find themselves either being confronted for their sins, or when they find themselves experiencing some brokenness in this life, some kind of injury or tragedy that they didn't even bring on themselves, Have you noticed the sweetness and the softness with which they turn to God in hope and confidence? 
Brothers and sisters, let me tell you that that is a sweet evidence of the Holy Spirit that is unworldly. It is otherworldly. And that's exactly the kind of thing that God was hoping for from His people. That when He struck them, they wouldn't rear back and accuse Him and, and, and be angry with Him, but that they would humble themselves before Him, knowing that He is their only hope, trusting that He is as good as He says He is, knowing that He is compassionate because He has told them that He is a compassionate God. But do you see what the full fruit of all of this would be? Here it is, that they'd crush all of their altars into chalk, along with the Asherim, those, those idols, and the incense idols, that's our altars. That's wholehearted worship is the response to this striking. The, their hearts are turned fully towards God in this day. They'd crush all of the things that they used for worship, and they would look to Him alone. See, man doesn't create images of God to worship. God doesn't create images of God to worship. Man is the image of God who worships God. We see that in the very first pages of the Bible. Adam was created in the image of God and after his likeness for upward and outward relationship. Here we find that when this day hits, humanity looks fully human again. They are worshiping God as God created him to worship. Of course, I see a a picture of Christ here. God is pictured as a great gardener here, God himself. But we also know that the original Adam was called a gardener king when he was in Eden. And he was called to have dominion over that, that, that garden and to multiply and to fill it. We also know that we were promised in Genesis 3 that a son would come from the woman who would undo the works of the serpent. Isaiah 53 kind of fills this out for us in verses 4 to 5, where we find that God's Davidic spirit-anointed king would also be a suffering servant who would lay down his life for his people. God would strike this servant and bring healing and peace to his people. And Isaiah 53, 4-5 saying this, Surely he, this coming Messiah, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him what? Stricken. Same word, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. You remember that sword-wielding Gardener, he was pierced for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. See, this side of the cross, we know that King Jesus is the one who is the very image of the invisible God. He is the true Adam. In fact, after Jesus died in our place on the cross, he was raised from the dead. And in John 20, there is this beautiful small little note that you might have thought was an accident. You'll remember that Mary Magdalene finds the tomb empty. And and she is weeping. And she's weeping so hard and so surprised that it's empty that she turns and she finds herself face to face with Jesus himself. But catch this, she's so grief-stricken and like maybe he's raised from the dead and looking different. But she does not know who she's looking at. And he says, what's wrong? What are you looking for? And I love her response in verse 15. Just a, a little note, speaking of of what was going on in her heart. And it says she didn't recognize him because she supposed him to be a gardener. I don't think that was an accident. I think that's a subtle hint that this is the man who is ushering in the new creation. This is the new and better gardener who has come to to bring us into the home that we have awaited for. That great garden, the new Eden, the new creation, the new heavens and new earth that we so desperately want to be in, Jesus has come to bring us all the way home. 
See, I think Jesus Christ, our great King, the last Adam, was struck in our place with God's wrath, with God's sword to atone for our sins, reconciling us to God so that we can worship Him wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly, without the influence of sin, death, or the devil, King Jesus did this to bring us all the way home to the garden where He will reign over God's garden, God's wholeheartedly worshiping people forever. What a day. What a day. Of course, you know, in verses 10 to 11, we're told that the others don't have a discernment of God or a heart for God. And you'll notice there that we are told that God will not have compassion on them. Just think about this. There are those who will find God's compassion on the last day. And there are those who will not. And on that day, they will find no mercy from God. See, God's compassion only comes to those who have been united to Jesus Christ, our great gardener king, by faith and repentance. So maybe uh, this morning you're thinking to yourself, I'm not worshiping idols, and I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't even really know what they look like. I mean, maybe I've seen one in a Chinese restaurant sometime, but I'm not like an idol worshiper. And so you're thinking that you're okay with God. And yet what God says in His Word is, is that if you are not wholeheartedly following me and putting your faith in Christ, then you are not those who should be confident on the last day when I come back. In fact, maybe many of you are worshiping good gifts of God and you don't even realize it. Treating them as gods of your heart, things like money, jobs, sex, comfort, all good gifts of God, but if treated as God, become bad gods that can't save us and are ultimately still in use in the domain of darkness. So if you have not and are not trusting Christ for salvation, please don't leave here without putting your faith in Christ. I'll even go to lunch late today if you'd like to talk about Christ as we await celebrating 50 years. But on the last day, the question you need to ask is, will you be struck or will you hide in the one who has been struck for you? See, God will pluck some out of the fire when that great horn blows on the last day. And that's the great jubilee trumpet that we find in verses 12 to 13. Now, this is really a glorious image. The jubilee trumpet was blown every 50 years on the day of atonement with fresh meaning. Every 50 years when that trumpet was blown, what would happen is everyone that had found, them removed, found themselves removed from their homes, if they had sold their land, if they had had to even sell themselves into slavery and were no longer free, on that day when that horn was blown on the Day of Atonement, it signaled that all of those who were slaves and those who had been cast out of their home were welcomed back. I mean, what a glorious image. And no, I didn't even plan this text specifically for this day, knowing this thing was happening. And yet we find here that every 50 years, this horn would be blown, bringing all of those who were slaves home to their home again. This is a way that God would picture the fact that they lived in His land, that it was His land, not theirs, ultimately. I think this picture is a reality that not all of Israel here, we find a couple of things about the way that God calls them home, and we learn a couple of things. But here's one. First, notice in verse 12 that God is gathering His people one by one out of the Israel borders. Now, we don't have time to dwell here, but I think that what He's doing is He's saying that not all of Israel is truly Israel. That He's choosing those who wholeheartedly worship Him, who put their confidence and faith in Him, have taken Him at His word. Now, I think this is really important for you if you're a kid this morning. If you're a kid and you're here, you need to know that you are saved by your faith in Christ and Christ alone. None of us are saved because our mom and dad believed in the gospel. All of us need to believe in the gospel. God takes us all based on whether or not we have put our faith in Christ. 
So if that's not you today, you need to talk to your mom or dad about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. But we see another thing here in verse 13. Not only is it people are plucked up from the borders of Israel. In verse 13, he says, uh, also, those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord at the holy mountain of Jerusalem. See, Egypt and Assyria, those, famously, uh, those who famously opposed Israel, they're enemies. Uh, they represented the northern and southernmost parts of the Gentile world. And God says He will harvest worshipers who once lived as spiritual slaves. Spiritual slaves. Gentiles suffer, uh, who are under spiritual slavery, under the tyrannical rule of Satan. They will be called too on that last day. See, people from every t- and, uh, tribe and tongue will ascend God's holy mountain garden in Jerusalem where King Jesus reigns. Now this is, this is I think, just amazing. I, I'm longing for the day that I hear that trumpet. What about you? When we are freed from all of the brokenness of this world and we enter into a new heavenly garden. I'm waiting for that jubilee horn to be blown on the day of atonement, pointing forward to a greater day that is to come. A day when weeds and snakes are hypothetical and historical, but not actual anymore. Where we are freed from sin and death fully. See, jubilee every 50 years brings new meaning for Christians, and I think especially today for Trinity. I mean, just think about it. Today as we celebrate 50 years of God's faithfulness to our church. Every day, every Sunday for 50 years, the scattered have gathered here to worship and exalt Christ. God has done so much, and He still has the people here at 35th Ave in Peoria to testify to His glorious grace. But take note, Jubilee anticipated an incredibly bright future that is promised us in a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, when we celebrate 50 years, we look back at God's faithfulness. But if we really understand the kind of thing that's happening here, we look back because of what is promised in the future. A a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, the future is always more incredibly bright than the past that we have experienced. And so our great hope is, is that the best is yet to come for us, not just eschatologically. I sense and hope this. But I sense and hope also that this is true experientially for us in the coming 50 years. See, our great homecoming is yet to come And I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that day. But I'm excited about what God is going to be up to until then. So let's pray that God would give us more fruit and make us a fruitful people to the glory of His name until that day when that great uh, trumpet sounds. Let's pray.